As we enter the midpoint of the year 2021, it's been a long slog over the past 12 months. Luckily, vaccination rates are climbing. And what that means is that the COVID case rate has been dropping. We hope it stays there. But right now, we're feeling an optimism we hadn't felt for the past 12 months. It looks as if we may be coming out of the pandemic in a relatively good situation. So we wanted to have this episode be one on how to tap into people's leadership power in order to empower them to create changes in their communities. Our communities really need changes. The COVID pandemic has made this very, very clear. Now it's time for us to think about rolling up our sleeves and getting something done. Welcome to Gente and Health, a podcast by the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. I'm the Center's Director, David Hayes Bautista, the old Chicano professor. This podcast is an extension of the research we have been doing for many years. Join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of gente and health. Today, we have a special guest, Mandla Caise, who is an old friend. Mandla is an educator, a community planner, an advocate, and a community leader who has maintained a lifelong commitment to improving education outcomes, enhancing the quality of life in our communities, and advancing the cause of equity and justice on behalf of African-Americans and other marginalized communities and groups. Mandla was the leader and organizer of the Alliance for Equal Opportunity in Education, AEOE, or the initials, and its successful campaign to increase African-American enrollment at UCLA and throughout the UC system. Mandla became active in leadership and social change as a student, organizing students locally, statewide, and nationally, addressing issues such as affirmative action, college access, retention, and staff and faculty diversity, and also developing programs such as Saturday schools, after-school programs, youth summer camps, and student peer support groups. As a young adult, and he's still a young adult, I don't know how you do it, Mondley, you're young forever. As a young adult, he organized around South African disinvestment in support of the gang truce slash peace movement against police abuse and against environmental racism, as well as on behalf of education advocacy and youth development. Mandla is a founder of the UCLA Campus Retention Committee and Student Retention Center, as well as the founding project director of UCLA's first student-initiated student-run retention project, the Academic Support Program. He subsequently chose to make his life's work empowering students, parents, and young professionals and community residents as an education and community planning consultant. He is founder and CEO of New World Education, NWE, a consulting agency that has served thousands of students and residents locally throughout the state and in several locations across the country. Mandla is active in the leadership of various local education and other community-based organizations. In recognition of his work professionally and in the community, Mandla has received numerous awards and honors. He is a Chicago native, and he is a graduate of Hamilton High School right here in Los Angeles. He studied engineering, economics, and urban planning at UCLA, so he brings a good perspective to these issues. He is a UCLA alum, go Bruins, former president and current board member of the UCLA Black Alumni Association. Mandla, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Wow, that was long. <laughs> but you've done so much, and you still look so young. I'm jealous, but that's okay. So could you just share with us your story, your journey about learning to be such an advocate and empowering others to advocate for themselves? 
Well, uh, you know, uh, as you may, uh, well, as the, the bio shared, um, I'm a native of Chicago. I uh, came uh, to Los Angeles under uh, interesting circumstances, a uh, product of a, I wouldn't call it so much a custody battle, but my mom and dad did divorce when I was very young. I lived in Chicago for a while with a family member and then with my dad. And then my mom decided to bring my brother and I out here to Los Angeles with her. Uh, quite a, a dramatic and uh, I don't know, uh, you know, some might call it traumatizing, but I enjoyed every bit of the ride. It happened kind of overnight coming to Los Angeles and landed in mid-city LA, not far from where I'm sitting right now, uh, into a much more diverse community uh, than the one I lived in, uh, moving from that very stark black and white experience that was Chicago in the late 1960s to the very diverse, um, you know, Southwest uh, uh, predominantly Latino community that is California and uh, really um, getting exposed at an early age to that diversity. Uh, had a Catholic school education from that point forward. And, um, you know, uh, I think as a student, I was kind of a natural advocate for myself. I had uh, my family instilled a lot of confidence in me and my um, educational uh, capabilities. And uh, so I, I had a pretty healthy self-esteem in terms of who I was and what I could do. I think I became an advocate when I went, uh, ironically, into the public school system at a fairly diverse school. It was about uh, half uh, Black, half Jewish. And uh, folks began to question my intellectual ability. And I think that's the point at which I really became an advocate is when uh, I, I ran into institutional racism and people trying to redefine for me who I was, what I was capable of, and what I was able to do. And so that's really where I became an advocate for myself. Um, I encountered a similar challenge when I entered UCLA in the engineering program, uh, the only black male in many of my classes. And so that environment really led me into some self-doubt again. And uh, I had to uh, rediscover my voice, which I rediscovered uh, by getting involved in the Black Student Alliance and becoming a part of that. Wow, amazing. I did not know you were an engineering student. So was I. I, I knew there was something about you I really liked. Uh, and when I started out in engineering, uh, it was back in 1963, I was the only Latino in, in the engineering class. I was up at UC Davis. I know what it's like. Uh, and likewise, it was challenging and it forced me to figure out who, who am I? What's my voice? Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, so I know that your goal is to help create empowered people, particularly students, but also community leaders. So how do you know when someone has actually picked it up and run with it and is, has become an empowered individual? What do you see in them? I think more so than anything else, I see intentionality in everything that they do. And I see that sense of uh, self-determined intentions uh, in that what they are endeavoring to do, what they are passionate about doing really is uh, an extension of who they are and the kind of impact they want to have in the world. You know, I've had, um, I had a very unique experience at UCLA uh, not long after I graduated while I was in my second year of graduate school where we had uh, successfully advocated for the student initiated programs that I mentioned in, in the uh, 
the the bio. And um, so I, I had the opportunity, Dr. Hayes, to just really experiment as a young graduate student with a program that we were running uh, to try to figure out how to really empower our peers to take control of their education. I felt, as, as I shared, I became an advocate, at least in my the adult context, uh, through my um, participation in the Black Student Alliance, but how to actually direct that advocacy and that sense of uh, ownership into the classroom, it took me a bit longer. And so when I had that job, that was like my mission, that was my, my, my charge, was to figure out how do we bring the kind of advocacy, the kind of passion, the f- kind of community concern that I experienced as a student activist, how do we bring that into the classroom? How do we marry those two? How do we uh, eliminate this, this dichotomy between what uh, uh, empowerment and advocacy and actual uh, success in the classroom? And so, uh, you know, experimenting with that, I, I really did develop some very specific kind of um, ideas of what empowerment looks like. And so I think, you know, when when folks have goals and you can really see in their goals and in their actions that those are are coming from a place of their own kind of self-awareness. These are not ex- externally imposed goals. They're not pursuing their actions to make someone else happy or to uh, meet someone else's requirement, but it really is an extension of who they are and the kind of impact that they want to have in the world, then I know I'm dealing with an empowered individual and I'm dealing with someone who is a force to be reckoned with, not only on their own behalf, but on behalf of others around them. You know, that's, uh, as you say, it's, it's really, really important um, as a goal. I mean, for example, when we work with uh, training residents, medical education, Ultimately, at the end, you want persons out there, providers who are self-starters, who are lifelong learners, uh, who can set themselves goals for maintaining the intellectual alive and then applying it in their daily practice mm-hmm. patterns. So that's that's kind of the goal we'd like to see in everybody, where, mm-hmm. whatever they choose to do after mm-hmm. school, is just uh, understand where your passions are and being intentional about them mm-hmm. and staying involved. You also do a lot of work in leadership development. So maybe could you share with us in your experience, what makes someone a leader? Is it, you know, getting elected to something or being the big cheese somewhere or what is a leader? Um, Well, in my experience, what I've uh, learned to um, appreciate and value in leaders. And I I would say I, I define leaders very differently today than I did when I was coming into being a leader. And, Really, I think what it comes down to more than anything else is really uh, caring about other people. The act of leadership, I think, is stepping up, you know, taking initiative, being willing to step out there and do things and say things when others may not be willing to. But I appreciate that so much more now when it comes from a place of being concerned for other people than it comes from than coming from a place of being, you know, taking that stepping out there in order to show yourself or to, you know, advance yourself. So uh, one of the things that I, I, I ask people who don't believe they're leaders, do you care about other people? And are there things that have happened in your life that have caused you to, you know, take some action on behalf of other people that maybe, you know, challenged you or took you out of your comfort zone? And then I think people see the potential leader in themselves. 
So uh, really, I, I, I ask people to think about what they care about and who they care about and and to think about the kind of circumstances that would cause them to act and really challenge themselves and step out. That's amazing. You know, when I was you know, little, a kid, I would think, you know, there's always the fearless leader who fears nothing and blah, blah, blah. That was the great leader. And then over the years, I discovered that's not the definition of a great leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great leader is one who is very fearful of something. It's going to, is about ready to do something that will be difficult, painful, mm-hmm. mentally, perhaps physically, mm-hmm. uh, socially, just so fearful, but will go ahead and do it even with as with the fear, still doing it, still yeah. stepping out. That's the leader. I agree with that. Not the one who doesn't feel any fear. It's the one who doesn't let fear stop, let them stop you. So what are some tools that people can work on to be leaders? Well, I think, uh, you know, just really kind of marrying the two comments we both just made, I think problem solving tools, especially problems that are, you know, in our day to day environment, uh, whether it's in one's family or in one's community, you know, beginning to to think critically about what's happening around you and and identify um, where there are problems to be solved. Because I think, uh, again, going back to what we both just shared, I think you you really begin to realize your leadership. I, I think it's in everyone because I take I take it for granted that at least to a 99.9 percentile in my experience that most people care about something, right? They care about other people. So the question is, do they challenge themselves uh, do they put themselves in positions where uh, they are fearful, they are a little doubtful, and they can push themselves forward? So I think one of the most important tools that people can can uh, take up are, are just uh, tools that allow them to examine what's going on around them and find out if there are problems or w- ways they can wait, make things better. And that's one of the reasons that I, I believe one of the most important experiences for anyone who's, who is trying to find the leadership in them or or even trying to uh, express leadership that they know is in them is, is to get involved in community service. I, I'm a big advocate of community service. I don't, I don't know if there's a better platform for establishing one's leadership than in the service uh, in community, which then allows you to kind of identify problems or challenge problems to be solved or challenges to be faced. And then you can begin to cultivate in yourself uh, the courage to 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 overcome your fears and and begin to figure out how to address and and, and solve those problems. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think back in my grade school and high school days, you got the student body president elected, so you think, oh, that's the leader. Wow, I'm you know I'm just a grunt. There are 300 people in my class. So I will never be a class. I guess I'm not a leader. To finally understand that, as you just said, and let me just uh, underscore that, Mandla. The leadership is within you. Yes. Each one of us has the capacity to be a leader. Yeah. You don't have to be in an elected position. Yeah. You don't have to be, you know, the you know the big cheese or whatever else. Yeah. And it's what we often call leadership from below. Is yeah. it is actually getting in there and moving the process. And particularly if you're a minority student in the sciences, health sciences, basic sciences, doesn't matter. You're going to feel a lot of that pressure. Yeah. Uh, that somehow you shouldn't be there. You don't belong there. That sort of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to want, if 
you don't let it get to you, you're going to want to have to push back and say, no, I, I belong here. And so you want to work on the process. And you may think, well, I'm not a dean. I'm not a faculty. I'm just a student. That's where it all starts. It starts with us. It starts with yeah. each one of us. We challenge the process. We step up and say, this is not right. Yeah. There, I have another vision. Yeah. Can you work with me to achieve this vision? Yeah. And it's funny that you say that because I had, uh, I'll never forget it. It's just the opposite experience of what you had. I, uh, when, when I came to Los Angeles and I entered that little Catholic school, it was a very diverse school. And I think I was kind of uh, an anomaly there. You know, there weren't, you know, it was, it was, it was fairly diverse. Um, uh, in retrospect, at the time, I didn't think it was so diverse because there was a relatively small number of African-American students, but I was immediately uh, elected um, as a president of my fourth grade class, you know, nine years old. It was my first leadership opportunity. Wow. And it immediately went to my head, Dr. Hayes. And so it's, it's like the opposite example of what you shared. I was the big cheese and I performed horribly with the role because I really tried to rule over people. But I'm so glad that I got that experience of being a bad leader early. And I was forced to rethink what it meant to be a leader before I ever took up another leadership position. So I think it works both ways. You know, when we do kind of advance and perpetuate that 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 model of leadership that is about the person, you know, the potential damage that we do to those individuals and to our our society and our you know our different spaces when when we allow that that uh, other model, you know, that self centered model of leadership to kind of you know. Uh, predominate yeah that sort of top-down yeah. hierarchical yeah. you know yeah. i'm the big cheese yeah. i tell you what to do yeah. you do it yeah uh, that that's not leadership as i've discovered over the years mm -hmm. very much so so how would you suggest that students if you are students i know there are people that aren't students or people that are in their jobs working how do you advocate for yourself either in academia or in the job you just happen to occupy today yeah, um, well, uh, you know, you asked me in that first question, what is an empowered individual? And we talked about that intentionality. I think one of the ways to start that process is to always uh, reflect on what it is that you want to do. What, what, what do you want to do with that position that you're in at that point in time? If you're a freshman at a college and you're the first person in your family to get there, what do you want to do with that role? What do you want to do with that education? What, what's the best use of it? And then that gives you a why with your advocacy. You know, your advocacy is not reactive. A lot of times we were slow to develop our advocacy because we wait until something happens, right, that challenges us to see if we know how to respond or not. But I think once you do develop that intentionality and if, you know, um, you're um, thoughtful and uh, purposeful about what you choose to do with a given role or position that you have and you you do it in the spirit that we talked about of what what can I do for not only for myself but for other people from this position it really does push you to become an advocate it pushes you to to state that intention to state that goal and you get a chance to see how people respond or react to that intention or goal much more much earlier then if you if you didn't state it or if you didn't become if you didn't find your voice and express what your intentions are, um, you you would you would come to that 
point much more uh, passively. Like you find out later as as what your intentions are revealed to people. Uh, they begin to push back or to try to undermine what you're trying to do. So I always encourage people to kind of really uh, state some intentions and, and to and to uh, uh, be uh, willing and open to the fact of changing your mind. Like some people don't want to state intentions because they're not sure yet, but you don't have to be sure. You know, you just begin to think about what is it I want to do. You begin to express that, and then you can advocate. Your advocacy comes from there, and then if you need to change your mind and go a different direction, you can always do so. Yeah, actually, there's a body of research literature on this model of leadership, and it's called transformative leadership. It's kind of leadership from below. You're a leader not because you're elected or you're appointed or because it's your job description. You're a leader because of your intentionality. And your ability to share that intentionality with others so that they also buy into what you want to do, what would be good to change the situation. You're not, uh, you know, yelling at people or pushing them. Right. Uh, you're actually, you're helping them uh, discover their own intentionalities right. and that their intentionalities and yours can work together towards right. achieving some change. Yeah, I've learned to... to um to describe that as an invitation. Like when I, when I talk to people about, you know, uh, bringing people into their leadership, you know, uh, I encourage folks who are in those leadership roles to not so much focus on their selflessness and the sacrifice that they're making, but more so folk, uh, capture the value and the growth that they're getting out of it. Then as you're encouraging others to join you, it's more of an invitation than it is, you know, a charge or, you know, authoritatively suggesting that other people contribute. You know, you help them to see the the, the value of, of, of service and leadership as a servant leader. Mm -hmm. And this is important. By the way, I, I should have mentioned that Mandla works with our med pep program and he's uh, with every time our med pep students meet, he's with her because we have intentionally put leadership in as a big part of our curriculum. Uh, again, not to create big cheeses in the health sciences in the future, but so they can learn to take control of their own education and navigate the academic system to get what they want out of their time that they're in school. And it just so happens that Mandla has developed uh, some systems for actually helping people learn how to do this. He is president and CEO of New World Education, which specializes in helping students discover their own empowerment and their own leadership. I mean, you saw a need uh, and you're helping to fill it. Can you elaborate on what impelled you to establish New World Education? Yeah, that, that's a great uh, question. And it, it goes back to the very first question uh, that you uh, asked me about uh, how I learned to advocate for myself. Uh, you know, in that context of my experience at UCLA, I, I became familiar with um, a phenomenon that most people who are trying to get their children to college are unaware of, and that's the phenomenon of dismissal and attrition. And I became a victim of that. I was dismissed from UCLA as an engineering student on or about my junior year. And uh, I, I think one of the most remarkable things about it to me is that I felt so much embarrassment and shame 
because I came into UCLA. You know, I, I mean, you know, Dr. Hayes, if you're if you're the sole African-American admitted to the engineering program at UCLA, you're, you, you've got to be a pretty capable student. <laughs> so it's amazing how certain things can get you to doubt yourself. Right. Like uh, after you've, uh, you know, uh, demonstrated what you're capable of. But uh, the remarkable thing about it is that my GPA was not below a 2.0. I mean, I had some very tough quarters that caused my first year GPA to drop um, off a full point. But it was only in retrospect that I realized that uh, I was the, I was, it was really a bureaucratic dismissal. You know, there's some campuses where, you know, if you're having a bad quarter, you can drop those classes after the fact or the, on the last day. And, you know, there's different ways that that worked. But having that experience of dismissal, I learned about dismissal. And when I got back, my goal was that that no student would experience that uh, if, if I met them, that I would I would show them how to, um, you know, avoid dismissal. And even if they got that letter which I, I learned that 10 to 12 percent of UCLA students got that letter every year. Uh, if they got that letter, you know, I would show them how to how to respond to it and how to, you know, um, get themselves reinstated very quickly and get back on track. So that's what led us to create those student initiated programs at UCLA, which at that time I had no intention of working on as a profession, but I got drawn into it. Uh, as you said, you know, that engineering came into play, the urban planning came into play. I developed uh, with my with my peers at the time, we were able to develop a system to kind of, uh, you know, attract students in, share with them empowerment strategies, help them avoid dismissal, uh, redirect them if they engage dismissal. And we really had a very effective uh, program going on. Uh, because of the, that that uh, system that we were able to put into place, uh, of which I think a big big part was envir- environment. You know, understanding your environment and how to navigate that environment. To to repeat the the word you used earlier, and uh, I was so excited about the work that we were doing and how it was growing. You know, uh, it became uh, a phenomenon that affected uh, every. Uh, underrepresented community on campus very quickly. The other communities followed and set up their own programs. And then it spread throughout the UC system where there were student initiated programs of that kind uh, throughout the UC. About six other campuses had them. And so my goal was I'm getting out of here at UCLA. You know, there were people who were encouraging me to take up another job at that time, but I was just too excited. I wanted to share it as widely as possible. I mean, that new world piece there was was literal when I started. I wanted to share these strategies and really impact how people learn, and especially folks who were alienated from you know the education ex, uh, system or the educational experience, and uh, to enable them to take ownership of that and really maximize it and, and use it uh, to the best of uh, the the best interest of themselves and their families and communities. All right. Uh, so let's shift around to the other edge of, um, I guess, the student involvement. Sometimes, you know, I run across students who want to do everything and get involved in this, get involved in that, get all sorts of things. And sometimes that cuts into their studies. And particularly if you're going into the health sciences, hey, you got to study. Um, what can students do so they can balance 
both their studies and their passion for social justice? What would you what a great question. <laughs> what a great question. I mean, you you got at the heart of my dismissal right there. You know, uh, I don't know if you picked it up. Most people don't. But I was a engineering activist, Dr. Hayes. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> and so there I was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be at rallies, you know, with uh, chemistry books and physics books in my backpack, you know. And, and to be honest with you, again, that worked for three years. You know, I wasn't a junior. I was a junior before I got dismissed, before that train ran out. I was somehow managing that. Uh, going to every meeting with folks who were mostly uh, history and social science majors. And there I was, the engineering uh, activist in the room. And the two just, they weren't compatible. But I'll tell you what the bigger factor was. It was my um, home life was the bigger factor. And I accepted this notion that people felt that my academics and my social justice uh, interests were incompatible when really it was my my social uh, uh, development, you know, my lack of discipline, um, my lack of, um, you know, like a stable home environment where, um, you know, others appreciated what it took to be a successful engineering uh, major at UCLA and therefore, you know, uh, you know, a family that kind of worked with that, you know, my mom was a single mom with, with uh, six children. And so, you know, the, the duties with the younger brothers and sisters and, and uh, duties at home uh, work uh, and contributing financially to the household. A lot of those things were really more of a, a factor in my dismissal than, uh, the balancing of the two. But I will answer your question this way. Uh, there's there's two main strategies that I share with folks. Uh, one is to um, bring, if, if, if you have an activist uh, impulse and you have a passion for social justice, bring it in line with your academic interests. In other words, there, there, there is a place for a health major in social justice. And if you find a space that where you can use what you're doing in the classroom uh, for your health studies, if you can use that in your social justice work, if you can align them better, you are uh, better able to manage the two things. And if you're involved in a social justice endeavor that's in a very different field of interest than your health interests. So the first thing is to try to bring them together where you're kind of doing both at the same time. You're learning about health even as you're participating in social justice work. And then the second one is just more basic and more practical. And that has to do with just understand that you have to be a very highly organized person if you're going to be a highly effective person, not only on one front, but on two. Going to have to manage uh, your life better, manage your time better. And again, it's all about alignment. Can you create a, a schedule that balances the um, time that you put into your studies versus the time that you put in your social justice work. And then the last one I think is relational. Continue to build relationships with people who keep you connected to your um, studies as much as you are um, 
bonding with the people who are working with you in social justice. Those are strong bonds, those social justice bonds. And so they impact you a great deal. Um, but you need to have similar bonds around your studies if you're gonna be committed to those. So you should have as much of a support network and a work group and a team that's focused on your studies as you do on any kind of social justice project or community service project. Amazing. Yes, those bonds are strong. I mean, three of us who were undergraduates at Berkeley in the 60s uh, just finished writing a book about it. Oh, wow. Uh, and we still work together 50 years later. Very, very strong yeah. bonds. Yeah. Well, this is uh, this has been absolutely amazing. Uh, and I hope that that students in particular, if they're moving into the sciences, the health sciences, just keep in the back of your mind, actually, the science and the social activism go very much hand in hand. We saw that so much in this during the COVID pandemic. Science has to do with epidemiology, spread of disease. Uh, what do we do about it? How do we prevent the spread of the coronavirus? Well, there were people making decisions who brought their lived experience in. They came from Beverly Hills, Westwood. Oh, uh, unplug your laptop, go home, stay at home, don't leave the house. You can work from home. That's great. But we didn't have people there whose parents were farm workers, whose parents were janitors, who couldn't stop working. And so we never thought of, in terms of policy, well, how do we get them to be protected? How do we get them PPE? We just, we didn't think about them because we didn't have that rep, those voices represented in the rooms when those decisions were made. Yeah. So science is practiced by humans. Yes. Humans strive for social justice. Yeah. Wow. This has been so great, Mandela. Thank you so much. Do you have any last words or advice you'd want to share with our listeners? Well, I, I really appreciate what, what you just said. And uh, I, I really do think, Dr. Hayes, that your work, your work is textbook in terms of the issues that we're talking about. I mean, the way in which you have engaged the study of health and the way in which you have created a platform for so many of your students to, to do exactly, I, I mean, I could give the advice to students to kind of marry their health interests with social justice. You've provided a platform for them to do exactly that. So you've made it so easy. And, and I, you know, I know I sing your praises sometimes. It probably embarrasses you a little bit. I know you, you but I, I, I tell you the, the platform that you have uh, uh, provided uh, really does enable folks to empower themselves, uh, to find their voices as we're talking about, to, to recognize and discover the leader in themselves. Um, I would encourage uh, not our students to be more uh, intentional in finding spaces like the one you've created wherever they go. You know, I'm a big advocate for UCLA. I roll out the red carpet and I show people, you know, just the, 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 the legacy of empowerment, the legacy of creating spaces that kind of marry, uh, you know, academic study with social justice and community service. I share that with people all the time, but I tell them up front, if you go to another campus, it's okay. Just find 
the features that we just shared with you here at UCLA at the other campus. And I'll say, go with God, go wherever you want to go, but make sure it has those pieces in place because the kind of, the kind of person, the professional it can allow you to become, it, it, it really is um, special in this world. It's not, it's not a uh, singular coming out of UCLA, but it is very unique. The really, the last words I, I, I have for our students is really, if you're, if you're listening to these, these, the frame that Dr. Hayes has shared, you know, the questions that he's asked, the answers that I've given, the, the feedback that he's given. And if that's meaningful for you, be more thoughtful in finding those kinds of spaces for yourself or creating them for yourselves uh, wherever you go uh, forward. Uh, those of us who are have worked with Dr. Hayes, some of you will move on to other institutions. You can take uh, MedPEP and the Center for the Study of uh, Latino Health and Culture, you can take it with you in your mind and in your practice, and you can recreate opportunities to continue to engage in this work wherever you go, and you will grow from it, and it will continue to nurture and develop you. Wow. I put my little applause sign up. Thank you so much, Mandla. Thank you so much. That's very inspirational. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you all for listening. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done so already. This episode was written and produced by Seda Santiso Greenwood, Brandy Lopez, and Giselle Hernandez. Our executive producers are Adriana Valdez and Seda Santiso Greenwood. Editing was provided by Elias Rodriguez. And music this week was provided by Mariachi de Uclatlan. Tune in for the next episode as we delve further into the topics of Latino culture, gente, and health. Oh,